This episode is brought to you by The Grinning Goat, Canada's vegan fashion boutique with a storefront in Calgary and an online store that ships across Canada and worldwide. As a Paw and Order podcast listener, you can save 15% on your entire purchase at grinninggoat.ca simply using the code PAW15 at checkout. This is another iRaw podcast. We podcast to make the world a better place for animals. In the Canadian justice system, animals' interests are rarely represented, but the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Pawn Order Podcast, and these are their stories. everyone, and welcome to episode 82 of the Paw and Order podcast. I'm Camille Labchuk, joined by my co-host today, Peter Sankoff. Yo, Peter. Hey, Camille, how are you? I'm hanging in there. Um, you know, I'm double vaccinated, so that's cool. I think you are too. Yep, absolutely. Got mine a couple of weeks ago now. Yeah, me too. By the time this episode comes out, I will be two weeks post-vax and fully immune, or to the extent possible, which is pretty cool. Um, I'm as promised, I know we discussed this on the podcast before, I am making a donation to the Canadian Centre for Alternatives to Animal Methods and uh, encouraging people to get vaccinated. And if you feel guilty about the animal testing, you can do that and make a donation and help contribute to actually uh, funding solutions so that we don't have any need to test medications on animals in the future. So yeah, double, right. double vaccinated. Apart from that, I, I had a cool visit to a sanctuary the other weekend. I went to the Browns Michael micro sanctuary outside Cambridge where they just have chickens feeders. So we hung out with a bunch of chickens for the afternoon. That was pretty fun. How many chickens do they have at Brown's Micro Sanctuary? Well, my friend Tamara Brown, who runs it, uh, didn't actually know. And they prefer kind of not to count them because then if somebody, uh, if they lose someone, it's kind of sad to like reduce the numbers. So she sort of knows like each category of chickens and each area that they live in, how many, but not the total number, which is which is cool. And I know Tamara listens to this podcast, so I'm super excited that we got the chance to visit. But it was fun. Tamara has a house rooster named Steve, who actually lives mostly indoors with them and just chills. Steve has a wife. Mm-hmm. Um, I forget his wife's name right now, but they're just always together and super fun, super friendly. It was awesome to hang out with them. Great. Looking forward to it. Sounds outstanding. Steve the chicken. Steve, Steve the rooster. Steve the sorry. rooster. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And how about you? Yeah, I- Brown's Micro Sanctuary. Yeah. Uh, me, I'm winding down. This is one of my last... Um, uh, things that I've got to do. I'm I'm going on a much needed vacation uh, starting next week. Uh, it's been really busy and yeah, I'm looking forward to some time off. So I'm uh, finalizing working on uh, the intervention for animal justice um, in a case before the Alberta Court of Appeal. And that's sort of my last uh, order of business before I go on vacation for a couple of weeks. Yeah. And I think, uh, so this is the case of the Queen and Chen. We spoke about this on the podcast a few episodes back back, but we are intervening in that case. And I think, Peter, once we get to the stage of actually preparing for oral arguments or moving forward in a more substantive way, uh, I think we could actually do a much more substantial update on that case so everyone gets to hear all the cool details. But essentially, it's a case, as 
you mentioned that the Alberta Court of Appeal about sentencing in a cruelty case. And our contribution will hopefully be to explain the sentencing principles that should apply in situations like this, as we think, and uh, you know, talk about what really matters to animals. So I'm excited to see where this one goes. Yeah, that's really what it's all about. You just described it very well. It's about sort of setting out uh, how animal cruelty sentencing should look if you really focus on the animals who are the victims of that offending. There we go. All right, so schedule update for our listeners. We have a little bit of podcast news for the summer. We've decided that we're all going to get a vacation from the podcast in July. So we're taking July off. You won't get any new episodes in July, but we'll be returning on August 3rd for a special show with all three hosts. So you'll get me, you'll get Peter, and you'll get Jessica for a special episode of our triumphant return of Paw and Order after our little summer break. Triumphant. <laughs> triumphant. No doubt. Triumphant. We'll be triumphant. We'll be energized because we'll have had a little break and it will be great. All right. I like that. I don't know about triumphant, but okay. Triumphant. <laughs> All right. So let's go with, let's go with triumphant. I like triumphant. And if now, Camille, by the way, I noticed, uh, I noticed something funny um, on your uh, Facebook feed. You had a memory of being eight years as a lawyer. Is that right? That's true. I got called to the bar on, I think it was June 21st, June 22nd, uh, 2013. So yeah, I'm edging up on eight years there. Well, the reason I, I wanted to point that out. Edging up, I believe you've passed it. Passed. You just passed it, yeah. Uh, the reason I pointed it out is because it's kind of funny because as weird as it sounds, given uh, how much older I am than you, we have just about exactly the same amount of legal experience. That's what's really funny. <laughs> because uh, because of all the years that I resigned when I was in, uh, I keep track of how many years I've been at the bar, but I resigned for a very long period of time when I moved to New Zealand. So as a result, I'm also just completely my eighth year at the bar. Oh, well, well, well. So so if you so or I are, are ever time. in court together, I'm not going to refer to you as senior counsel. <laughs> no, I was you called a to. lot earlier than you. That is true. I was called in 99, so a lot earlier than you, but I have a long gap in my legal counsel record, as it were. Oh, that's funny. Well, it sometimes comes up in court. I mean, I think this is kind of idiosyncratic. It depends on the courthouse. But when I used to practice criminal law, I'd have to travel to courthouse houses around the GTA, outside the city, around southwestern Ontario. And sometimes if you go down to Hamilton, they have this very peculiar system for being called to speak in court. So if you're there representing a client in sort of administrative court, just trying to set a trial date or get disclosure or whatever, uh, it's based on seniority. So if you're not local counsel and you don't really know who's been practicing long enough, so, you know, I'm coming from Toronto, I don't know every single Hamilton lawyer, you kind of just have to like wait and be like, okay, is anyone else who seems like they might be more senior gonna go okay i guess i'll try <laughs> yeah fair enough the seniority thing is kind of funny also because i never know which year to pick because my situation's a bit odd right but uh you know whenever i'm in a seniority situation i just go with 99 because it's nice and long time ago <laughs> so i'm still more senior than you god damn it all right fine <laughs> All right, folks, if you enjoy listening to this podcast, here's your reminder to leave us a review and add to our more than 155 star reviews. This really does help people find the podcast when we get favorable ratings. Uh, we got a new review from someone. Oh, actually, 
Why don't I read out Tamara Brown's review? Oh, we have a review from Tamara, yes. Tamara, who I was just speaking with about because I visited her micro-sanctuary. So Tamara, the title is Fantastic Advocates for Animals. And she says, if only animal farmers and exploiters would listen to this. Thank you, Pot and Order, for everything you're doing to get animals' needs the attention they deserve in the legal and political arenas. It helps advocates become better and is a great resource for anyone looking for a better understanding of issues facing animals in Canada. Steve the Rooster says, hey, what? This oh, is so here funny. we go, Steve the Rooster. This wasn't even planned. I didn't even look at the <laughs> potential reviews, but so sure, delighted to Camille, see this one. Sure. Well, we also got another review, an unnamed review. Well, no, it's the name is You Have to Listen, which seems strange, but it is a must-listen, excellent topics, educational and fast-moving. It is fast-moving, Camille. Entertaining and informative. We are fast-moving, so let's move off of that review. And uh, thank you, uh, You Have to Listen. <laughs> we agree, we do have to listen. Thank you for the reviews. Thank you, guys. You can also support us for as little as a dollar a month on Patreon. Uh, we have Patreon prize tiers. They're still somewhat new. But if you support us at the, the amount of $5 a month, you get mailed a card to say thanks, as always. But you also get a Pond Order sticker now. At $20 a month, you get your choice between an official Pond Order mug or a t-shirt. I have both. They are both great. And we have t-shirts available for everyone to purchase at shop.animaljustice.ca, whether you're a Patreon or not. Uh, or patron, patron or not, but if you are a patron, patron, <laughs> I can't talk today, and you support patron, us, patron, 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 if you are a patron and you support us at $10 a month or more, you get a 15% discount in our online store. Fantastic. Well, that takes us to our news segment, Camille. It's been, uh, you know, busy as usual, right? It's been busy. Yeah, it's been busy. So we have a little bit of an egg gag update. Uh, the mm. federal egg gag bill, Peter, it's bill C-205. Just a little bit of a reminder for background on that bill. It was introduced by conservative agriculture critic John Barlow. It moved to the Agriculture Committee and it was being studied there over the last month, six weeks. So... Um, there's some good news and some bad news. I'll say the bad news first, but the bad news is that the committee refused to hear testimony from animal justice. Uh, they blocked us and every single other animal protection group from testifying, which was quite surprising because this is an ag-gag bill. We've been very active on ag-gag bills. Animal justice actually produced a report, as we've discussed before on this podcast, about biosecurity. Now, just keep in mind, this federal ag-gag bill is sort of it's being supposed billed. to be about biosecurity. It's supposed to be all about biosecurity. The bill itself, the way it was originally drafted, it said that anyone who's unlawfully on farm property, essentially, and, um, you know, could put animals at risk of some sort of pathogen affecting them, that they could be punished by uh, massive fines or even jail time. So pretty significant, I think, that we put out a report examining those biosecurity claims, yet we still were not invited to testify. So that was quite frustrating. But what ultimately happened, Peter, is the committee heard from a bunch of farmers, basically, a few scientists, and from the CFIA and the Canadian Food Inspection Agency. They're, of course, the regulator of, of some aspects of animal farming. They uh, did not seem very warm toward this bill. They didn't feel like they had the enforcement powers to move forward on it. They pointed out lots of problems and inconsistencies with it. And what ended up happening when the committee considered amendments to the bill is they amended it in a pretty significant way. So, Peter, now, instead of just focusing 
focusing on and singling out people who are not lawfully on farm property and saying that they can create a biosecurity risk, they removed that language about unlawfulness. So now the bill applies to anybody that could include farmers, mm. contractors, farm operators or owners, anyone who's on a farm property and introduces an actual risk to the animals. So I actually think this is a pretty important amendment because it's not singling out animal advocates whom we know have never caused a biosecurity concern. And it's got the potential to hold negligent farmers to account for the regular biosecurity concerns that they have created historically. And remind me, I thought it had a recklessness component to it, or has that been removed? Is it now negligence or? Uh, so it's it's more that the actus reus, so the prohibited action has been amended. So now right. the idea is that a pathogen that is potentially introduced, it has to, it, it must be something that could reasonably affect animals. Before it just said that it could affect animals, which is pretty, right. it's a pretty, you know, low standard and I think risks criminalizing a lot of people. Um, now right. it has to actually reasonably they be capable. They made it a little tougher. Yeah. 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 Well, that's good too. That uh, anything that's going to restrict uh, criminality is better in my book. Yeah, no, I tend to agree. So I think this is significant. Concerned. I think this is actually an incredible success. Uh, a lot of people were very active in emailing that committee and trying to meet with MPs who sat on it and explaining to them why this bill was so problematic. And it was really gratifying to see that so many of the MPs on that committee actually did take these concerns seriously and amended it in a helpful way. I'd say the uh, the un the unlawfully the unlawfully part made no sense whatsoever because to be honest it made no it had no connection to you know the 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 releasing of pathogens or the negligent transmission of disease like what difference does it make whether you were there lawfully or unlawfully if you're reckless or being negligent towards releasing transmission it really doesn't matter what your purpose on the property actually is yeah that's exactly right if biosecurity is the core then the, the protection should be against biosecurity, not about why you're there. Yep. And, you know, again, back to the report that we released based on over two decades of evidence compiled by the Canadian Food Inspection Agency, it's very clear that biosecurity concerns are primarily created by the actions of farmers and farm operators. Um, there's never been a single case of a trespasser introducing some sort of pathogen, but things like sharing needles, like feeding animals to other animals, like letting farmed animals become exposed to wild animals with pathogens. Those are things that uh, farmers have regularly done that have created disease outbreaks. So we know where the risk is, and this bill actually seems to respond to some extent to that real risk. All right. Uh, we have also in the news... Um this is more of a, well, they're all sad news stories, but this is more of a particular sad news story because uh, it brings back to mind, I can still remember doing this story last year, Camille. It's an anniversary of a story uh, we reported on last year, Reagan Russell's uh, death uh, from being hit by a pig transport truck uh, near Hamilton. And uh, it is the anniversary and there were a lot of special uh, ceremonies. Uh, I saw them all over the internet. It was really... Uh, inspirational to watch and that occurred uh, very recently and uh, obviously um, it's important to commemorate uh, what happened and it's also a good time to sort of report what's going on as a result of uh, what happened to Regan Russell. Absolutely. So yes, unfortunately Regan was run over and killed by a transport truck carrying pigs to their death only two days after Ontario passed its egg egg law last year. She was killed on June 19th, 2020. So, you know, as you mentioned, Peter, 
Uh, animal advocates held vigils outside of the uh, Fearman's Pork Slaughterhouse in Burlington, where she was killed. And also vigils around the world. Uh, folks in countries all over held vig- vigils commemorating her. Her passing has unfortunately been a really galvanizing event um, and something that touched a lot of people deeply. So it's, I think, good to see her memory uh, being you know, shared in this way and and her contributions being applauded. Uh, we certainly miss her a lot and wish that there was some way to bring her back. And in, in Regan's name, we all fight on. Animal justice, of course, is challenging. The Security from Trespass and Protecting Food Safety Act, the egg gag law, which was passed just uh, before she died. What's not mentioned is we do not have an update on the charges uh, that were filed against the driver, correct? We, we, I mean, we updated those last year, but there's been nothing new on that front. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So the um, the driver who ran her over has apparently been charged with careless driving causing careless death, driving, which yeah. is a provincial offense. And I think about a year ago, we did an episode um, about yep. that, uh, you know, the legal issues involved in a case like that. Uh, I don't have an update on that. My understanding from speaking with people who follow it more closely is that it's been very difficult to get information, including court dates. And yeah, these things are not very publicized. I mean, traffic court, it's essentially in a, a low, it's not in regular criminal court. So like there's very little attention paid to what's going on in what is effectively traffic or provincial offenses court. Yeah, that's right. So anything that we do here, we will of course share, but that's where things stand right now. All right, Peter, there was a really interesting piece in the Globe that we wanted to discuss um, about catch and release fishing. So it was this long catch and release sort of debate style piece, an opinion article by a writer named Mark Hume, who is so interesting, Peter, because the piece starts off really strong, actually. It seems very pro-fish at first. So uh, the writer explains that many indigenous communities are, indigenous nations are um, opposed to catch and release fishing. They consider it to be torture. They think it's uh, you know, a, a, a poor way to treat the animals with whom we share this planet. So my feeling initially when I started reading this is, oh, wow, this is going to be really good. And it was, it was it was great. It started off strong. But then it sort of devolves into this piece, primarily, it seemed to me, designed for the writer to justify his own activities because he is a catch and release fisher and he thinks that's, you know, kind of fun and traditional. Well, and, and also, like, there's, there's a bunch of things going on. There's so many ways to look at this. Like, there was also, you know, there was sort of the undertone of of catch and release versus like regular fishing, right? Fishing for capture with being which is the better type of fishing, both of which are designed to take the fish and harm the fish in different ways, um, which was also underlying the piece. Let me just say, um, to start with, I, I, I'm glad to see the piece. Like any piece that is willing to discuss the suffering that fish endure um, in these sorts of activities is good uh, because I don't think it's done enough. I think we too often take for granted that things like catch and release are like, oh, those are good because the fish aren't killed is sort of a, a good thing. I think it's important that the more that we start to discuss, um, I don't know how to say this, I guess practices that are secondary to the obvious killing practices that go on, the better off I think we'll be in the long run in sort in starting to challenge the accepted wisdom of what's acceptable. And let me just say, um, um, you know, the, the piece resonated for me in a lot of ways, Camille, because I, I've been fishing 
fishing a long time ago. I've only been fishing once. Um, I went fishing many, many years ago, uh, over 30 years ago. And I'll tell you, um, it was a really powerful experience. It was a lot like what he said. Um, I went fishing in the ocean where fish come came up very readily. And um, I remember pulling them up. I remember how unbelievable it was to see this thing come out of the ocean. So I remember all the emotions that he felt. But even then, I remember the whole idea of catch and release striking me as a bit odd because we didn't catch and release everything because we were fishing for food. At the time, I was not vegan, but I didn't want all the fish I caught because you catch a lot of fish that you don't want. You're trying to catch bigger fish and smaller fish take the lure. Uh, But I could tell even then, I mean, forget about the suffering of the fish wriggling on the line. Like fishing is not a clean sport. It's no cleaner than hunters saying they get a clean kill every time they shoot. It's just ridiculous. It's not possible. Even that one day, the number of fish that were, the number of fishes, sorry, Camille, that were hooked, you know, accidentally through the eye, accidentally, like, or or like ripped through the, the, the mouth was ripped. Like, yes, there were some of the fish I was able to release cleanly to the extent that they weren't damaged in other ways, as the piece talks about, right? The cruelty of the wriggle, the struggle, they're not the same. Whether they lived when I put them back in the ocean, who the hell knows? But like, I'm talking about the ones that were clearly damaged or injured just from coming off the hook. So that was just my single experience with this. And that resonated with me in reading this. I mean, the catch and release idea, the reason I really wanted to talk about it so much is because it's just another one of those myths that people who like to use animals like talk about it. It's it's to me, it's very similar to the hunting myth. Yeah. The hunting myth being that there's no suffering in the hunting process because the goal of hunting is a clean kill. Well, the goal of hunting may or may not be a clean kill. It doesn't mean that you get a clean kill. It doesn't, it just, it doesn't work that way and nor does catch and release. And I think this article helps explore at least some of those uh, problems. Yeah, I agree. We have so little control over the ambient conditions. There's environmental conditions, which could involve weather, it could involve distance away. You know, we're talking about hunting at least, um, that interfere with any potential attempt to get a quote-unquote clean kill, whatever that actually is. Um, And yeah, obviously with fishing, it's even more difficult. So I I agree with you that it's good to see this actually being discussed because frankly, fish issues are are still, you know, at the very bottom of the list for most people. And so to see ink actually being spilled, talking about this in the Globe and Mail is good. But one of my other frustrations, Peter, is that the writer gives really short shrift to this idea that fish actually even feel pain. In fact, he spends a number of paragraphs interviewing folks and trying to come up with studies that sort of support this idea that they probably don't feel pain in the same way that we do. When the reality is that that's simply not based in the science. I mean, I've read these fish studies, uh, these fish sentient studies. And, you know, in fact, Jonathan Balcom, who's the author of the book, What a Fish Knows, who is a scientist, Dr. Jonathan Balcom, and has written about this obviously in some depth. He actually wrote a letter into the Globe in response to this piece, um, pointing out that he's very firmly of the view that fish, of course, feel pain, which is both common sense and supported by science. So uh, it wasn't just Dr. Balcom who actually wrote in. There were, I think, about a half a dozen letters to the editor in response to this, Peter, which was super interesting to me because they were all supportive of this idea of greater protections for fish and not treating them in this way, which really said something to me that that many people were riled up about this enough to write into the globe. 
And and I just like I just I, I agree, and that's 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 a clear thing for me. And I I, I just want to touch on the other point, like just I, maybe I'm rehashing what I already said, but I'm just looking at the article again. And every time, what frustrates me about this is like every time I read an article and it goes through the article and he talks about, well, here's the department's best practices for the release of Atlantic salmon. Lists 15 procedures anglers should follow. Okay, and it lists all these 15 things that anglers should follow. And, and it sort of sets these and goes, well, you know, if we follow these 15 things, we'll all be good. And, you know, anglers greatly increase the chances any fish will survive release unharmed. Like, again, you and I both roll our eyes, but we're sitting here and I'm wondering, like, how many of the Yoho guys who go out on a daily basis are following these 15 steps? That's what I'm trying to say. Like, our study of animal treatment, it's sort of like saying, you know, if every if every if every dairy farmer used a brush, Camille, we know that the dairy cattle would be happier. But how many of them do? I couldn't resist the brush. But you know, you know, the idea is always like there's always this list of best practices. And what I'm trying to say is like these best practices are are the way of reducing worst outcomes. But more and more, like it's just it's so rare that the best practices are actually met on a day to day basis. So you start from the idea that, well, we should use all these things to reduce worst outcomes. The problem is, A, most people don't even use these best practices. Like, that's just a real, real concern. And I think I think it's, it's, it's a real shortcoming of the way we do this. And I've been saying this, this has been like, a, you know, one of the, my go-to lines um, throughout, is that whenever it comes to an animal practice, we're always willing to shift the risk onto the backs of the animals. And that's what this is really all about. It's like saying, okay, Let's go fish. Try to do these fifteen practices so that they'll they'll s- survive unscathed. I certainly, as Joe Blow Fisher, thirty years ago, had no idea what these practices were, but I was allowed to fish anyway, and so was everybody else. So, like, you can publish these fifteen procedures of best practice. That doesn't mean that any fisherman or fisher person or fisher whatever has to adhere to them. That's just an idea to make everybody feel better about the fact that we're fishing. Like it's just that is animal welfare in a nutshell. Let's publish some loosey goosey guidelines that we say we'll do our best to reduce everything. But whether or not people adhere to them out in the wild is neither here nor there. They're just there to make us feel better that they exist so we can continue going on and blasting or hooking or doing whatever the hell we want. That to me is really the big picture issue with these sorts of things. And let me just stress, Camille, I'm not out there saying that every hunter, every fisher, every Everybody else ignores all these things. I am certain that there are hunters and fishers who feel strongly about these things and really do feel that whatever kinship with the nature that, you know, it compels them to blast animals to oblivion in a way that makes them feel at one with the universe. I don't really know what that's like, but that's what they feel. But but nonetheless, A, I'm not convinced everyone else does. I think those people are a minority to begin with. And B, even if there are those people, I still think it shifts all the risk onto the animals and really puts them in a vulnerable position. So, I mean, those are my concerns when I read all these things. It's just a continued shift of risk to animal species. 
Yeah. And, you know, that shifting of risk allows the broader public, in a sense, to, you know, sort of turn their eyes away from something that, um, you know, we really should be question, questioning its existence in the first place, not trying to find the right way to do a wrong thing, which, you know, frankly, there just is no right way ultimately to do this. Uh, so I, you know, I share your frustration with that. Also, if, if if these, you know, voluntary rules produced by whoever for the, you know, safe and nice catch and release fishing that they're saying is possible. If those are actually enforceable rules, I wouldn't feel a bit better about it because how are you going to enforce that? Are you going to have like a conservation officer standing behind the back Everywhere. of every angler yeah. on every deep Everywhere. ocean fishing boat? No. Because we know how well they do when they're at various places like that. By the way, Camille, I mean, seriously, like I, I'd love, I'm reading, I'm just reading one part. I'm sure you were mentioning, um, mentioning this when you were talking about something that the author does, but imagine if an animal rights advocate did what I'm about to read to you, okay? When I taught my daughters how to catch and release fish, one of the first things they asked me was, does it hurt them? I was able to show them that a hooked fish doesn't exhibit signs of obvious pain when handled carefully. A person with a hook in their lip would writhe in agony, but fish typically lie still, then dart off with released without any sign of trauma. That is the that is the fucking stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. And I'm no I'm no fish scientist, but I do know one thing. You cannot equate the emotional or physical response of one species directly with another. It doesn't work that way. You just can't do that. You can't say because one species like sometimes you can. Some earmarked things are the same, but the fact that a person would react one way and a fish would react another way is not a statement that one is in pain and the other isn't. That is not the way pain works. That is not the way pain receptors are measured. The fish lies still when you're removing the, the hook. Good for you. Like, like, what does that tell you? Yeah, you're right. It's funny because we're the ones who are always accused of like anthropomorphizing animals and like comparing their reactions to humans. And it, I remember actually, when, in this case, we're talking about a fish who lives in a completely different medium than us. Totally. Like water versus air. And yeah, it's a very different thing. Very, very different. Well, because I, I raised that because like when I first looked at when you when you look at foie gras, for example, all my students, when they watch the foie gras rat video, they all like they all have a, a, a huge response when and they watch the the thing the the pipe get shoved down the geese's throat, right? Because of the gag reflex that we would experience. Geese don't have gag reflex. Not that a pipe going down their throat is not painful, but they don't have gag reflex. So as a result, like they're not going to feel that. Well, that's what I mean. It's the same thing. Like a person with a pipe in their throat would experience great agony as you shove the like. What you can't you can't equate species like that. I don't. I, I again, I'm not saying that that it's it's absolutely wrong but it, it's 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 not you can't equate two species in that way directly like i don't think that shows anything what the author is trying to show certainly not without a great more deal more science to back it up well i also find it interesting i mean we, we've just discussed the logical fallacy there but i think there's actually a factual problem as well because fish wriggle like heck when they're hooked i mean everyone's seen those fishing videos even if you haven't experienced this yourself but they're on the end of the hook and they're wriggling and they're bouncing around to get away. I mean, it just seems to me like if he wants to accept that that kind of reaction is equivalent in some way to what a human would do, uh, you've got that reaction there to look at. 
Uh, it's fun stuff, Camille. Fun. Yeah. All right. One more piece in the news. All right. Last piece. And this one's a bit more positive. Uh, New York Times wrote, not that they wrote, but they published a really stunning piece on the ethics of zoos. And, you know, the view essentially is that zoos are unjustifiably cruel to animals and should no longer be operating as they do. Uh, and Peter, this this wasn't just like a short op-ed column. This was like a feature opinion piece. It was, nah, it was deep. Yeah, it went into a great deal of depth. Um, it examined many of the ethical problems we've spoken about regarding zoos on this podcast. It also looked at some interesting research about zoos' concerns or their, their purported self-promotion role in conservation and education, neither of which holds up to scrutiny when you actually look what? at the facts. What, Camille? They don't. What, can you I believe keep hearing that? they that do great things for us? conservation. Yeah. Hard to believe. Hard it's to amazing believe. that almost none of the animals held in zoos actually are kept there for any conservation purpose. But Camille, you are forgetting about the... They, they apparently have... I was surprised to hear that there are actually three marginal success stories. I was actually... Even that num, that many surprised me. I had to I had to like retrench my belief. Three out of, you know, does, tens of thousands that they keep on that basis. But, but like they've actually, to their credit, managed to restore to a limited extent three species. Uh, it's wolves, I believe, or one of them. I couldn't remember the other two. To back into the wild to a limited extent. But yeah, I mean, essentially the basic idea that they're preserving animals to be released back in the wild, as we know, is 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 a flawed idea because they can't actually do that. Um, you know, and I, I, I thought the article was really a good one. We recommend it. I'm sure we'll link to it in the show notes because I think it exposed a lot of the commonly uh, stated things about zoos, about their role in conservation, about the way in which uh, they they make moral claims to doing things that are si simultaneously undermined by the way in which they actually do things, um, and 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 really it asks a lot of good questions about whether or not zoos should continue to exist in any real form, whether they're serving any purpose other than entertainment. Uh, I found the opinion polls, <laughs> you know, <laughs> taken <laughs> from zoo zoo attendees, not that they surprised me, um, but like very informative to show that zoo attendees are really just there for entertainment. They're not really there for conservation or anything else, just to entertain the kids for an afternoon. Yeah, one study in 2008 spoke with uh, over 200 zoo visitors about their reasons for coming to the zoo. And 66% of them said that their primary reason for going was to have an outing with friends or family. Only 12% said their intention was to learn about animals. And this comes as no surprise if you followed this stuff. But I think those numbers are pretty stark. Um, other research has found that only 20% of people even bother to read the signs at exhibits. Yeah, I mean, look, I, again, I, the, 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 the case against zoos is strong. We don't need to revisit it here. I think we've done it before to a certain extent. I just think the article makes it quite strongly. It certainly makes the case for certainly the larger, the larger animals, the cats, the bears, the elephants. We've made that case here before as well. It is, it is far past time that these animals are kept in zoos. It is really such a problem. And of course, it makes the case. What I liked about the article is 
explores the idea, well, if, if the idea is to keep these animals, why not keep them in sanctuaries? Why not keep them in places where they're not on display? Why not keep them in places where they can, you know, experience some form of natural behavior? Yeah, and this is, I think, where most forward-thinking people on zoos are starting to land, is the idea that we've got zoo infrastructure, so we need to use that in some way. But what could a new zoo sanctuary model look like? Um, You know, enlarged enclosures, putting the interests of animals first, having any display be purely incidental. There's a lot to work with there, and I think a really important role that these facilities can play in the future with a rethink. So bravo to the New York Times for publishing this cool piece. Okay, and for our main topic today, I'm really excited to welcome my friend Katie Sykes to speak with us about her new book. Katie's an associate professor at the Faculty of Law at Thompson Rivers University in Kamloops, BC, and a member of the Board of Advisors of Animal Justice. She's a graduate of the University of Toronto Faculty of Law, Harvard Law School, and the Schulich School of Law at Dalhousie University in Halifax. Her most recent book that we're going to be talking about today is Animal Welfare and International Trade Law, the Impact of the WTO Seal Case, published by Elgar this year. With Peter Sankoff and Von Black, she also co-edited Canadian Perspectives on Animals and the Law, which was released in 2015. Great book. I wrote a chapter in it. Great She's chapter. Also, <laughs> thank you. Katie has published articles on animal law in a variety of journals, including the Canadian Journal of Comparative and Contemporary Law, the Canadian Yearbook of International Law, Animal Law Review, World Trade Review, Transnational Environmental Law, Journal of International Wildlife Law and Policy, George Washington International Law Review, and the European Journal of International Law. You are busy, Katie. <laughs> Thanks I, for taking I, a few <laughs> minutes to join us today. <laughs> I did not think you were going to read out that whole shopping list. <laughs> Why but not? Yeah, I'm very, I'm very busy and important. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> thanks thanks for having me on Camille it's really a, an honor to be on the podcast I'm a huge fan oh well we're huge fans of you obviously and I'm excited that you're joining us today to speak about this book because I think for um, a lot of people they might not appreciate what the issues are with international trade and animal welfare but it's surprisingly complex and interesting and actually heading in a positive direction when you break it down so I'm looking forward to jumping into it so Katie the jumping off place for your book is a case that was decided before the World Trade Organization in 2014, which was when the European Union banned imports and sales of all seal products. Um, Canada and Norway challenged that EU law at the World Trade Organization as a restriction on trade that was illegal under WTO law. So I wonder just to sort of set the scene for our listeners, especially for people who don't have experience in international trade, can you explain what the World Trade Organization does and why it has anything to do with animals? Sure. Yeah, it's a really good question because you, you kind of wouldn't think so on the surface of it. Um, There is a long history of countries having treaties with each other about trade. So way back in the day, you know, if you sort of go back to like the the 19th century, early 19th century, um, it was very common for countries to have um, high barriers to imports, um, especially imports, but also exports, like if they didn't want their nice things to go to other countries. Um, But typically taxes on stuff coming into your country to protect your own producers. So if you're, you know, um, I don't know, Portugal and you make wine and you don't want the nasty French people competing with your winemakers, you slap a big tax on the wine um, and you stop it from 
coming in. And in the 19th century, when sort of more economically liberal theories of how the economy works and how um, economies grow started to be ascendant with the Industrial Revolution and like Adam Smith's ideas and so on, um, starting really with England, starting with a treaty between France and England in uh, the 1860s, um, countries started to make deals with each other and say, hey, it's actually kind of good if we can get your wine. And also it's good if we can sell our products to you and everybody sort of grows economically from that. Um, so that began with bilateral deals between different countries and sort of fast forward to the period after the Second World War, um, when there had been very high barriers to trade in the 1930s, which um, economists argue about this, but I think the general uh, consensus is that that was part of the problems that sort of caused a collapse in the global economy and the, the Great Depression um, and a lot of economic suffering for a lot of people around the world. And, you know, maybe also contributed to the rise of fascism and the war. So there was a big movement internationally post-World War II um, all over all areas of international law to say, let's not do this kind of stuff anymore where we like fight each other and let's try to cooperate and have agreement on shared international values and institutions. And one of those was with the international economy. And there was a there was, was sort of a start on um a very grand organization that was to have been called the International Trade Organization, which would have been um, a multilateral institution kind of along the lines of the International Monetary Fund that was in charge of trade rules. And it didn't quite go as far as the people who had this idea thought it would go, but it ended up with a sort of like partial version of it, which was a global-ish, global <laughs> global for the 1940s. So the usual players that you would expect to be part of a global economic treaty in the 1940s, um, agreed to a multilateral treaty where essentially what they said was, we won't keep slapping tariffs on each other. We'll agree to um, set rates of tariffs and we won't go above them. And so we may go down and we won't go up. And then also a bunch of other rules that had to do with kind of like not finding backdoor ways around those, those tariff reductions. So you couldn't sort of have it both ways and say, yeah, I agree not to put a hundred percent tariff on your goods, but I'm going to make a law that says your goods aren't allowed to be sold in my country to sort of cheat on the commitment. So that was a thing called GATT, um, the General Agreement on Trade and Tariffs. This dream of having a global institution that would be in charge of all of those rules didn't die. Um, and in the 1980s, there was a real resurgence of kind of a new version of liberalism in economics, right, that we call neoliberalism, um, where th that was based on the view that, you know, the, the more you reduce um, economic regulation and rules and sort of barriers to economic activity, the better off everybody is. We all get richer, the economy grows, blah, blah, blah. So that kind of found um, a home in international trade law, culminating in negotiations towards in the creation of finally this global institution called the World Trade Organization um, and a much more extensive network of multilateral treaties. At that point, uh, genuinely multilateral, you know, including most countries in the world. And today it's, it's uh, I think it's north of, I want to say 170 countries are signatories to the WTO Almost treaties. Almost everyone. 
almost everyone. I think the exceptions are like North Korea and I don't know, something else equivalent to North Korea. So it is a, a global institution. Um, it is WTO, the World Trade Organization, kind of refers to a bunch of different things, but um, it's, it's an international institution. It is um, a negotiating forum for all of these members of the WTO to talk about trade. Um, it's also a court. So there is, um, I mean, it's slightly inaccurate to refer to it as a court, but I think it really gets what it does. There is an, uh, an adjudicative um, body that is charged with hearing complaints from members. So if a member of the WTO does something that another member sees as not consistent with these treaty commitments, then the, the member that is aggrieved can go to an arbitration panel and then following that to um, an appellate court um, if they don't get the result they want and say, you know, this other country did this, we don't like it. Um, and a little asterisk on that because that system just uh, kind of isn't functioning right now um, for sort of weird geopolitical reasons. But basically the appellate body doesn't have enough members to function. It might even, I haven't been keeping track of this, but it might be down to zero because they have um, set terms. And then for a new member to be appointed, there has to be consensus of the members. And the US stopped consenting. <laughs> so, so they ran out of WTO appellate body members. So there kind of like isn't a lot of dispute resolution right now. But for, for a time, especially kind of starting in the late 1990s after the creation of the WTO, really up to this crisis at the appellate body, um, it was one of the most active and well-regarded international sort of adjudicatory institutions because um, I, I think part because it had real power to do stuff. Um, one of the features of international law is that a lot of the time it doesn't have a lot of sort of co coercive force, right? I mean, the, yeah, the, the international law school is always like international law is completely meaningless because there's not much of an enforcement mechanism, right? Because what happens respect. if you don't if you don't follow it? Well, like people disapprove of you. Right? Yeah, like the <laughs> protocol, for instance, don't exactly. follow it, leave it, yeah. whatever. Nobody yeah. does anything. And what the WTO has is the ability to impose trade sanctions. So imposing trade sanctions on a WTO member is illegal because you agreed not to do that in your signing up to the treaties. But if you go through the adjudication process and you satisfy the WTO um, dispute settlement body that, you know, the European Union did a bad thing and it's contrary to the treaties and your Canada, then your remedy is you get to impose retaliatory trade sanctions on them. And it's legal because it's imposed by the by the dispute settlement body. Um, so that does have some teeth. Um, and they, there are other remedies that they can order as well. Uh, and so it, it became a very influential and sort of powerful source of international law. Um, and why does it have to do with animals? Well, the thing about the WTO that I think is, is why it's controversial um, is that when you kind of stop and think about it with trade, like it has to do with everything, right? Um, tariffs is one thing. Tariffs are kind of easy. You can see them. You can, you know, when they're being imposed or not. But remember, there's that other kind of rule about no backdoor cheating, right? So you can't say, 
I don't want um, Canadian seal products um, and in order to keep them out, slap a tariff on them. Um, but what if you say, um, I don't, I, I want seal products to only be allowed into my country if they have this kind of label on them or only be allowed into my country if they uh, are from seals that were killed in a humane way. Right. So for example, um, an attempt to impose some sort of standards on the products that are coming into the country to exactly. ensure some degree of yeah. animal welfare. Exactly. And you can make a rule like that that appears to have nothing to do with trade, right? So it just says seal products are only allowed on these conditions or seal products aren't allowed at all, which is what the EU did. But if in fact it has all your seal products come from Canada, right? Or a handful of countries. What you're actually doing de facto is you're, you're erecting a trade barrier. Um, and the trade rules say you can't do that with some exceptions, right? Because otherwise, if there weren't exceptions, then no country would be able to regulate anything at all because trade ha- trade regulations have to do with everything, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And this, like, We're once you look economy. at it like that, any kind of um, safety regulation, health regulation, environmental regulation, regulation can and in an integrated world economy almost inevitably is going to have a different impact on imports from some countries and that could be a violation of the trade rules so in the 90s there was kind of i think a bit of a maybe maximalist interpretation of that or at any rate a fear of a maximalist interpretation that made governments kind of wary about you know all kinds of environmental regulations um, regulations about sort of how things are produced, uh, food safety regulations. And at that time, I would say animals in the sense of animal welfare, individual animals, weren't the most high profile issue. And that's probably because animals just weren't a high profile issue at all. Um, but the same logic applies, right? If you want to have um, a, a ban on products that are cosmetic products that are tested on animals. Well, you can ban them in your country. Fine. That has nothing to do with trade, but you also don't want to have manufacturers getting around that by manufacturing them in some other country where it's legal and exporting them to your country. Um, So you can say, well, they're all banned no matter where they come from. Um, But you may have a trade problem unless, unless there's a sort of room for you to do that within that policy exception. And that's very much subject to interpretation. Um, In the early days, there wasn't a whole lot of established interpretation. So, you know, people were kind of worried, like there was a lot of writing in the 90s and early 2000s from animal law scholars saying, this is the WTO, the new resurgent sort of international regime on trade and this powerful court is like the worst thing that happened to animal welfare ever. It's going to make tie people's hands, make it impossible for governments to have like meaningful regulation on animal welfare. So that's like a long winded answer to, you know, to be fair, a really big question. What's the WTO? It's, it's, it's a lot, you know? Yeah. So that's in a nutshell what the WTO <laughs> is and the impact that it, it can have on animals. So thanks for that really um, important background information. So yeah, back to our, back to our issue about the jumping off case for your book, which is the um, SEALs case before the WTO. So yeah, just a bit of background on that. I find this one really interesting personally, because before mm-hmm. I went to law school and actually part of my inspiration for becoming an animal rights lawyer was working with 
with Humane Society International on um, efforts to convince the European Union to ban seal products. And those involved, you know, going to the ice flows, taking photographs, mm-hmm. taking videos, and using that evidence in the European Parliament to show them the truth about what went on. And, uh, you know, let me just be clear, because the sealing industry and the government have tried very hard to muddy the waters. We're talking about the commercial seal kill here, not indigenous sealing, which no group, including me or any that I've worked for, um, opposes. So, um, you know, back to that case, the EU in 2009 actually did ban imports and sales of seal products. And uh, as we mentioned, Canada and Norway decided to go to the WTO and challenge that as a restriction on trade that was, yeah. in their view, illegal. So what ended up happening with that case? How did it play out? Um, well, obviously, I think it's really interesting because I wrote a lot about it. You wrote a book about it. <laughs> I wrote a book about it. I wrote some articles about it. I contributed to an amicus brief in the case. I used to say that I was a SEAL lawyer because like everything I did all the time was about this case. Um, What ended up happening? I think um, I would say in a nutshell, the short answer is that the the SEALs won, the EU won, Um, even though uh, the technical result of the case is that uh, Canada and Norway won a technical victory. So the, the ban as originally formulated was found to not to comply with some provisions of WTO law. Um, But the reason I say that the SEALs won is a couple of things. Number one, the WTO recognized that animal welfare is a legitimate reason for invoking these policy considerations or sort of, you know, policy wiggle room. Um, And that had not been established before. And that was one of the reasons that policymakers were sort of uh, quite anxious and um, deterred from getting into trade problems with animal welfare. So it's clear that there is there is no explicit policy exception in WTO law for animal welfare. There is one for public morals, and it is clear that public concerns about cruelty to animals can fit in that exception. Which and then is the other, huge, because I remember at huge, the time, I yeah. mean, in the EU, we would go over to the European Par- Parliament and yeah. do lobbying. And um, it wasn't a very difficult task in a sense, because citizens were so outraged at mm-hmm. what happened with the commercial seal kill. Like It was very much a public moral issue for citizens of many EU yeah. bloc countries. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, if you were sitting down and writing the WTO treaties today, pro- probably animal welfare would actually be in the treaty text. But the, the words go back to 1948 and like people weren't thinking about it then. Um, and so there's a lot of stuff in the in the treaties that is, you know, the language is doesn't exactly match up to the categories that we think about in 2021. And so there's interpretive work to do that. Like there isn't even an exception for environmental regulations. But there's stuff that if you look at it, you can interpret it like conservation of natural resources, the way that people thought about these things. People didn't talk about the environment in 1948. You know, we didn't, we didn't really know what that was. I wasn't alive. (laughs) Yeah, not, not at this level, not, uh, but public morals is a concept that evolves and and shifts with time. You know, people's communities, moral norms change. um, And I think animal welfare has become a more prominent part of community moral norms, at least in some communities, probably most. Um, And the WTO recognized that that is part of the concept of public morals. And it, you know, uh, to me, that seems kind of obvious, but it was not confirmed. It makes a big difference that it is confirmed. And the other reason I think that the SEALs won in this case is, you know, I said there was this sort of technical non-compliance and the technical non-compliance actually had to do with this really, really complex and 
difficult issue about indigenous traditional sealing. Um, and the EU had an exception for that, right? So as you said, they, they were not opposed to um, indigenous traditional sealing. The ban didn't apply to it. There was a carve out and it had a bunch of sort of conditions for um, for seal products to fit in with that, into that exception. Um, and the WTO uh, at both levels, the, the panel, arbitration panel and the appellate body for slightly different reasons, um, had problems with that and the the this is where often legislation runs into difficulties in trade law is if there's any way that there's kind of like an uneven or unfair or not even handed application of the ban so if you if you have a straight flat out ban on a product it's these things always depend on the details but it might be easier to defend it in trade terms than if you have kind of some exceptions and some loopholes and then the the litigant claiming that it's a violation of trade law like Canada here in Norway can say well that's that, that's sort of like you want to have a ban but you're you're letting in the stuff from your friends um, you made a special kind of loophole for the stuff from your friends um, and this was particularly uh, relevant to there was like indigenous products that were um, that were from um, Denmark that were like it seemed like the ban was kind of tailor made for that. Um, so the the result of the case is that the indigenous exception was too broadly written because it allowed indigenous products in regardless of the animal welfare kind of um, conditions of the way that the, the products were caught. And the fix for that was to tighten up the exception and say there's still an exception for indigenous products, um, but there are some requirements about sort of using methods that don't um, inflict undue cruelty on the seals. So if you kind of like just just look at the, the outcome, it's that, well, this ban doesn't comply with WTO TO law. What's the fix? Um, a ban that's better for seals. <laughs> so that's why in the end, I mean, I don't think I don't think Canada viewed this as a win. Um, I don't think Norway viewed it as a win. Um, and that's I think they're right. They lost. <laughs> so. Yeah. And it was so interesting because, again, going back to, you know, 2008, 2009, when groups were working for this ban in, in the European Parliament, um, everyone was all the animal protection organizations were, of course, promoting and supporting indigenous exemptions. Uh, the Canadian government was was sort of instead using indigenous peoples and their practices mm -hmm. as um, a reason not to impose any seal ban whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I think that a more careful examination by Canada, and I, I know less about the situation with Norway, but a more careful examination there perhaps would have resulted in a, you know, a better ban from the outset. Yeah, possibly. I mean, I think it, it is really complicated and really difficult because I think it is important to acknowledge that, you know, at, at least some indigenous communities and, and advocates were passionately against this ban. Um, and despite the exception, you know, they argued that this uh, market and our products go on to part of sort of like an integrated market. And if you take away that market, there's nowhere for our products to go and it's taking away people's livelihoods. And that's a, a very serious consideration. Um, so it's, it's, not, it's not an easy question. Um, and I think part of what was interesting and what the WTO did was that my, my interpretation, this is very much my sort of editorializing on it, is the WTO said, as, 
as policymakers in Europe, you can't just completely bypass this question by just saying, okay, everything indigenous, we're just not touching, right? We just like erect a big barrier around it and we don't look behind that and we don't care about the methods of sealing and we don't inquire into whether um, it's cruel to the seals as if somehow there's, it's impossible for indigenous sealing to be less cruel or something. Like it just doesn't matter. Um, and I think that the WTO, one way of understanding the WTO's analysis of the case is to say, um, you can't kind of like disengage from these difficult questions about how we, um, how we make regulations in an area where there, there's indigenous activity and just say it's, it's off limits. It's not part of the question because it sort of is. <laughs> And it, it's it's very difficult. It's very complex. Um, and I don't have answers, but I think part of why the case is so interesting is that it, it makes us engage with those questions. Yeah. Yeah. And I won't pretend I have answers either. And I agree with you about the complexity. Um, so, so this was a pretty big development and certainly in international animal law. And you mentioned previously that before this case, a lot of scholars were saying that world trade issues and international trade um, were, you know, a hopeless impediment to achieving animal mm-hmm. welfare. Would you say that things have changed in the, the wake of this decision. Um, you know, I, uh, for instance, we talked about cosmetic mm-hmm. testing bans and the implications for imports into different countries. Uh, Canada actually made a really significant move two years ago when we banned the importation of shark fin uh, yeah. from yeah. anywhere in the world. Uh, would you say that the ruling has emboldened countries to take more international um, action in mm-hmm. products that may not comply with welfare standards? I think, um, I think that the answer to that is probably yes. Yes and no, which is a sort of very lawyery answer, and even more of a lawyer academic answer. Um, I think ultimately that's probably an empirical question, right? I, I think, and I do know there's there's some scholars out there. There's a, a guy called Ian Offor who is trying to sort of like actually collect some data on this to assess whether that's the case or not. So there's two things I think are important. Number one, the whole point of trade law, like international trade law is not about animals, right? They're a side yeah. issue. Um, the point of the WTO is to facilitate trade. Um, there is a lot of trade in animal products and it's growing and the WTO makes that easier. And the the unavoidable fact is that the more trade there is in animal products, the more animals suffer. So it's great that we have a nice decision from the WTO saying, you know, animal welfare is an ethical obligation for humankind and stuff. Awesome. But we also have have like, you know, millions more chickens and pigs and animals suffering and dying because they're going into the international trade in animal products. Um, and that probably is much more materially important to the animals than some nice language from the WTO that resulted in a slightly different ban on seal products, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so there's there's that, and I think that's really important. And I I think you know we should never forget that. Like I would I I, I was heartened by the result and some of the language in the seal case, but I I would not want to sort of get carried away and say this is kind of you know now international law is going to fix all the problems with animals. It's uh, that, That's a long way from being the case. Um, I think that the decision um, takes away a sort of an item that governments and policymakers may be concerned about or can say they're concerned
concerned about and point to as a as an excuse for not acting. Um, I think it probably did play a part in the fact that the Canadian government felt confident with the shark fin ban. Um, I think had had there not been the seal case and this confirmation that there's effectively an exception for animal welfare and also conservation, right? Because that's a, a conservation issue. Um, there might have been pushback and watering it down and things that happened in the past with other um, legislation to protect animals. Um, but on the other hand, it in no way obligates governments to do anything, right? So uh, there are almost certainly situations where governments have used being concerned about trade litigation, trade disputes as an excuse not to act. And now they just use a different excuse. They have lots still of excuses up there, exactly. Steve. If there's one thing I've exactly. learned. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, we can't ignore the context that animals have so few domestic protections in many countries yeah. as well. Canada being one of the worst offenders. Yeah. We don't even regulate the welfare of animals on farms in this country or have any standards yeah. whatsoever. Unlike the European Union, which does have comprehensive standards, we can argue about whether they're strong enough, but they do yeah. exist. So that's that's interesting. Um, you know, I, I, I know your book also touches on trade agreements and the ongoing negotiation of those. And as you yes. mentioned, of course, we're yeah. seeing more and more of those, both bilateral and multilateral ones. And um, I wonder if you see any movement about including animal welfare provisions in trade agreements. Are there any mm -hmm. existing ones that include animal protections or is this something that we might see in the future, do you think? Yeah, I, that's where I think things get really interesting because there's a um, there's a big contrast between the WTO, truly global, right? As you said, like pretty much everyone is, is part of the WTO. Um, the rules are sort of old. I mean, the core rules of the WTO are based on these 1948 treaties um, and they don't really kind of reflect like modern issues and in, in trade and the global economy. Uh, and over the years, the WTO is a negotiating forum has not been super successful. They have they have achieved some things, but um, there was a program when the WTO started out that this new creation of the WTO was just the beginning and they would continue to sort of negotiate global sort of frameworks for trade moving forward that would be, you know, um, match up to the changes in the world. Um, and that hasn't really happened because... I think mostly because there's, there has to be consensus among all the members and it's really hard to do that with that many members. Um, so as a place for developing new trade law, um, it really started fading away not that long after it came into being or, or started to sort of like become less important. Um, as members kind of decided, all right, a smaller group of us, a subset of us can do, do better at this by ourselves, right? Like, so sometimes, um, sometimes by bilateral, sometimes a regional group, and more and more in recent years, kind of what's sometimes called mega regional. So these like giant coalitions of, of countries that aren't really regional in the normal sense of that word. So one example that uh, I looked at a lot in the book is the, um, it was called the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP. Um, it's now called the Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership because- Nice rebrand there. Yeah, series of dramatic steps um, the U.S. spearheaded creating this thing. Then Trump got elected. The U.S. pulled out. The other countries continued and renamed it. And now I think the U.S. is going back in. Um, but it's huge. It's uh, 12 countries, I think, including the U.S. I think I think that's right. Um, and it's like half the globe. It's not really it's not really regional. <laughs> it's 
I guess it's uh, they're all near the Pacific in one way or another. I don't think even all of them are. Um, and those agreements are places where there's sort of rules that like reflect or address present day issues more explicitly. Um, and one of the things that's really interesting in those in these kind of new trade agreements is they can have positive obligations associated with them. So I talked about how with um, with the WTO, uh, there's no obligation to do anything about animals. There's no obligation to do anything about the environment. At best, there's an exception so that it doesn't stop a domestic government from litigating to protect animals. It doesn't obligate them to. Um, trade got really controversial um, in the 90s, in the 2000s. That's probably not really news to anybody. <laughs> Anyone's yeah, been, we've like, just been through watching NAFTA the news too here. So. <laughs> yeah. If you like know about MAGA and stuff, you might have noticed that trade is kind of controversial. One of the reasons it's controversial is... Um, countries, you know, groups in countries like labor and environmentalists are worried that if there's liberal open trade with another country where the standards are lower, um, that's going to undermine labor protections and environmental protections domestically. Because, you know, why would an employer bother employing people with um, strong labor protections if they can just relocate to this other country, produce everything there and import it into the States with uh, with no tariffs? Um, so as a response to that, modern trade agreements started having positive obligations built into them. So if you join this trade block, you must have these minimum standards of labor rights that are protected, of environmental protection. Um, and that's really interesting because that has the potential to, through the spread of these trading relationships, to um, spread a kind of like ratcheting up of protection standards. I mean, you can be, I think, quite reasonably skeptical about how well that actually works in practice, but it does create the framework for it to happen. Yeah, I mean, um, it's certainly something helpful. It sort of, I guess, would depend on uh, to, to what degree a country actually exports the products that it produces and whether a number of those are used at home, which mm -hmm. obviously wouldn't be implicated by the trade standards. but. You know, I think you're right. There does need to be some sort of baseline uh, level of protection there. Otherwise, we get this race to the bottom situation that you've alluded to. That's the concern. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And on the, the side of people who are sort of trade, pro-trade evangelists, um, they argue that trade is, isn't just trade. Trade is a spreading of values. And it's through trading relationships that the sort of community of nations um, evolves and values are shared and uh, that come to be, you know, global standards of environmental protection and labor protection. It seems maybe a little over-optimistic to me, but you can certainly see how it would be possible for that to happen, right? I mean, it really goes back to the ideals of the framers of GATT in the 1940s was it was part of this whole project of global peace and prosperity. It's like, we don't want to have world wars anymore. We don't want to hate each other. <laughs> we don't want to um, have uh, invade each other. And we also don't want to have economic wars with each other. And those things go together, right? If you're trading partners, you're sort of friends and you develop shared values. Um, so I guess this is the 21st century um, iteration of that is these kind of um, chapters and trade agreements about non-trade issues where um, parties to the trade agreement actually sign up to enforceable obligations about things that aren't actually trade, but are linked to trade. Um, there isn't any 
anything on animal welfare in any of the big multilateral agreements. There is in a number of bilateral agreements with the EU. And that connects to what you were talking about, that the EU is really, um, you know, it's not paradise for animals by any means, but it really is the only kind of major jurisdiction that has a comprehensive set of regulations for farm animal welfare. Um, I mean, I guess, you know, now that the United Kingdom is out of the EU, you could say that about the UK as well. Well, that's um, an interesting question because yeah. I, you probably know much more about this than me. So forgive me if I get some of these facts wrong, but my understanding is that the UK actually, uh, one of the reasons it said it was excited about Brexit and to leave is that it believed it could yeah. then enact higher standards that it was precluded from doing as a member of the EU bloc. So I think those were specific to farm animals and some issues about perhaps fur sales or import, but uh, is that, is that yeah, I, I can't say that I um, have been following Brexit and European <laughs> law well enough to opine about that because um, it's really complicated. Um, so the, the EU is itself a trade block, right? So all of these issues about, you know, can you sort of like keep out stuff from other EU members whose standards aren't as high? Well, in the EU, no, <laughs> you can't. So you can set your own standards and they can be higher, but in a in an integrated European economy, that might not be that meaningful. Um, so I guess that sounds to me like it's fun, but I think there might be a kernel of truth in that. Actually, um, I'm just sort of remembering the details now, and I believe it's the case that the EU or the UK is actually getting quite serious about banning domestic sales of fur. It stopped fur mm -hmm. farming many years ago and mm -hmm. not sure about the status of trapping fur, but um, from what I understand, they're on the precipice of actually passing a complete countrywide ban on the sale. That's of fur, awesome. It would be pretty amazing. Yeah. Like you said, I don't think possible under EU rules. Yeah, I don't think so. You can, you can do anything you like about saying, you know, our domestic law says you can't do this, but you, you can't really say, you know, other EU members, we're not going to sell your products because the, the EU is, you know, goes a lot further in terms of integration than the WTO. Like it's a, it's one single market. So you just really, it's, there's very limited ability to restrict um, stuff from, from other EU members. Um, so yeah, the, the EU has been quite proactive on having um, animal welfare language in some of its agreements with, with trade partners, um, sometimes kind of included in the bits that are about food safety because they're about food production. Um, and fairly vague language, but about sort of cooperation and uh, shared standards on welfare. Um, and sometimes more explicitly, like there's a couple that have animal welfare chapters. Um, there's a an NGO called Eurogroup for Animals that has done a lot of work on this, and they have written like model language um, that they propose for inclusion in trade agreements. And some of that language you see in EU trade agreements. Um, so it's it's really interesting and. And obviously, um, because the EU is relatively like a high welfare jurisdiction for animals, the concern is you have free trade with a country that has lower welfare standards and you can import their lower welfare beef or eggs or milk or whatever. It really dilutes those domestic standards. So it's to prevent that from happening. Um, and then the other side of it, I guess, like maybe the more optimistic side is the EU's higher standards are kind of spreading into other countries because if they want to produce something, if a country that is signatory to an agreement with one of with, with these kinds of provisions wants to produce 
animal products for ex export to the EU, they're going to have to meet the standards set out in the treaty and they may be higher than would otherwise be the case. Um, so that's a positive thing, even though it has to be considered in the context of just means more trade in animal products. Right? Yeah, yeah. At the end of the day, that's what all these trade trade agreements are trying to achieve. Um, so there's, there is some in a limited way in bilateral agreements movement towards actually explicitly dealing with animal welfare. But the other thing that I think is super interesting is environment chapters, which are um, not novel, like NAFTA has an environment chapter. Um, and I don't think that NAFTA's environment chapter was written thinking about animal welfare, doesn't talk about animal welfare. Um, modern uh, environment chapters don't either. So the TPP has an extensive environment chapter, which is very interesting and has like, you know, fairly strong enforcement mechanisms. Like you can actually sort of take a TPP um, trading partner to dispute resolution, resolution for failing to comply with, with that chapter. It's a long convoluted process, but it's possible. Um, so it's environment, it's not animal welfare. But one thing that I think, you know, animal, that the field of global animal law is starting to recognize more and more is that those are not completely separate things right like we we try we tend to think of them as conservation is about um animals in the aggregate as essentially like um commodities that humans use that we don't want to run out of um and animal welfare is about individuals and the sort of intrinsic value of not being cruel to them um, but they don't really kind of cleave that neatly um and some aspects of international environmental law um that are about conservation and protection of animals and animal species do sort of touch on animal welfare in tangential ways. And at the end of the day, you know, if you're protecting an animal, you're protecting an animal, right? Like I think, I think for, for people like you and me, it's like, well, if, a, if an endangered animal gets some protection from the law, that matters to that animal, whether it's protecting it from being killed or from being treated cruelly, it's, you know, from the, for the animal, <laughs> protection is protection. Um, so an example, example of kind of international environmental law protections having something to do with welfare is CITES, um, the Convention on International Trade and Endangered Species. And it's really about not um, letting like poachers kill endangered animals and, and export and import those, those products. Also a trade treaty, weirdly, but it's, it's an environmental treaty. But it has a, um, some provisions that have to do with welfare. So there are exceptions. Um, you can get permits to transport animals that are covered by CITES for certain specific purposes. Um, and if you do, there's a whole bunch of welfare requirements for transporting them that apply, um, like way more than apply to farm animals that are transported in Canada, for example. It's international law. It's not very well enforced. It's a treaty. And if you break it, not much happens. But the TPP um, in its environment chapter, among the things it says is every country that signs up to this, this treaty says we will abide by the international environmental agreements that we're party to, which includes CITES for pretty, I think all of them, like CITES is a very widely adopted mm -hmm. treaty, 
So potentially, I'm not saying this is going to happen. It's a little bit of a sort of stretch imaginary scenario, but it's certainly possible under the law. Um, a country could be violating the welfare obligations in CITES. That's a violation of an international environmental treaty that they signed up to and also promised to comply with under the TPP environment chapter. And another country could take them to dispute resolution for failing to do that. Not very likely, but, but possible. But then the other thing, if you imagine that scenario, and then think about another thing that's really interesting in this environment chapter in the TPP, CPTPP, um, and appears similar mechanisms appear in other trade treaties as well, is there are these provisions for citizen and NGO participation. So a country, Canada, is not likely to sue like Vietnam for not complying with CITES because like, why does the government of Canada care? Right? Yeah. They care they take about enormous <laughs> domestic yeah. citizen pressure to accomplish that. <laughs> Just not going to be high on their agenda. Um, animal justice. Well, it would actually work the other way around because it's domestic NGOs that are allowed to do it. So if Canada is not complying, <laughs> exactly. Right. Like if you were an international NGO and had a branch in Vietnam, which, you know, maybe someday, <laughs> or like an organization like Humane Society International, for example, um, finds out that this is happening, the there are mechanisms in the chapter to um, get information about it, to go to the government, the domestic government, and say, you know, we think you're not complying with these provisions. Can you give us information about it? Um, and sort of continuing on and, and escalating the process. Uh, and it can lead to a sort of process of cooperation between different governments to fix the problem. Um, and at the time that the TPP was being negotiated, it was super controversial. Trade is controversial. And, and generally speaking, one of the things I find really interesting about this whole area is sort of, you know, lefties and environmentalists and animal welfare people and animal rights people hate trade law, right? Just hate it. Hate the TPP. I like big demonstrations and um, a lot of, you know, op-eds and blog posts and stuff. Um, so not popular with, uh, with animal protection NGOs. Uh, but it, it would be possible for an animal protection NGO to make use of these provisions in a way that could draw attention to abuses that otherwise might not get attention um, and potentially even sort of put some pressure on countries, like meaningful pressure to fix it. Um, one of the criticisms at the time that it was being negotiated and it was really, really controversial was this is toothless, right? Like you can't, you know, at the WTO or in the regular trade provisions of the TPP, you can go to dispute resolution, you can slap tariffs on them. And this is just kind of, oh, please, can we have some information? And embarrassing the government potentially and that that's it. So this is something I think is super interesting and I think you do too. Um, I agree that that is true, right? Like Animal Justice or Humane Society International can't sue Canada or Vietnam and get like a, like a punitive remedy against them for failing to abide by comply with provisions that protect animals. You can't do that. But that doesn't mean that the mechanisms that exist are meaningless. 
things. In fact, I think that they are potentially incredibly useful. Um, well, and and this, I believe, actually has occurred at least once with yep. Humane Society International. Can you yeah. speak a little bit about that? Yeah, I really love this example. And there's a, a fantastic article about it that is by two Humane Society lawyers. And maybe we can put uh, uh, oh, we can link, link to it in the show notes. Sure. It's an academic article, so it's, you know, it's long, but it's actually like really well written. It's not written in like academic nonsense words. <laughs> it's easy to read. Um, and they used a treaty that is called CAFTA DR. It's a sort of Latin American and Dominican Republic trade treaty. So it's it's not a super new one. It goes it goes back away. Um, and it has an environment chapter. So it sort of came from this um move by the U.S. to include positive labor and environment obligations in its treaties because of this race to the bottom concern. Um, and some of the language in CAFTA-DR's environment chapter is quite similar to the language in CPTPP. Um, and it has this kind of these kind of mechanisms for like public participation. So there were there was a problem with endangered sea turtles in the Dominican Republic. They were being caught and like trinkets, tourist stuff being sold that was made out of these endangered sea turtles. Contrary to Dominican Republic law, right? They have they have legal protection for these animals, but it's a tiny developing country with not much money, so they weren't effectively enforcing those rules. Also, contrary to um, various, you know, international protections for endangered species and the environmental obligations under this trade treaty. So what happened was Humane Society International um, used the, the mechanisms for a domestic NGO because they had a, a presence in the Dominican Republic to kind of, you know, complain and say this is happening. And what's really interesting about the article is that the DR government was like, this is this is very oversimplified paraphrase of the article, but they were like, yeah, you know, they weren't against protecting the turtles. They just didn't have the capacity to protect the turtles. Right. And so through this, this sort of mechanism for gathering documentation and capacity sharing that is actually built into the treaty, um, the US government was able to work with them and improve the protection for the turtles. And I, I think this is just such an interesting thing to think about because we we do tend to think about sort of, you know, protect the animals by finding the wrongdoers and punishing the wrongdoers and like making them stop. Right. And this is a completely different way of thinking about it, which is sort of um, find ways to help, like find ways of collaborating and cooperating so that it becomes more possible for there to be better protection for animals. And in the context of trade, where a lot of the important relationships are between rich developed countries and and less rich developing countries that want the economic benefit of trading with big economies. Um, I think that's potentially a really interesting and promising avenue and like one that, you know, we should we really shouldn't ignore. With all of the drawbacks of trade treaties and they're real, uh, I, I think that that's a kind of, you know, I, I think one of the things that you and I share is an interest in possibly unexpected or weird tools that can be turned to to use for helping animals. Um, and this is one of them. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I always say that uh, the outcome, uh, you know, the potential outcome from using a tool is not always what you're going to get, uh, but you yeah. might get something interesting along the way that helps you advance closer toward your goal. And so I'm all in favor of trying to use yeah. creative, cool, unexpected trade mechanisms to, to help animals.
levels. It seems like including an just race area. I think it really is. Yeah, I I know this one example from Dominican Republic. I'm not sure if there have been others. There have been others um, on environmental protection, but I I think that that at, at the time was the first one, like specifically to protect animals. And I think it may still be the only. And, and I think you know to what you were saying, one of the the possible outcomes is just simply raising awareness. And with animals, that is meaningful. Right? Uh, half like of our battle, yeah. I, I, more than half of our battle is just sensitizing people to these mm-hmm. issues and convincing them that we need actual action and that things aren't all rosy. Yeah. And that yeah. what the government says it's doing or what's on paper may not match up to real life, which this mechanism is, you know, almost exactly made for that, right? It's sort of like citizens can go to this body and say, hey, you know, the, our government signed up to do this, but they're not doing it. And that's the, I mean, we can, we can yell about that um, outside of such a mechanism, but there's very limited ability to do things like, like get, get documents and get them to respond. <laughs> um, yeah. Any, any opportunity to force them to, to actually yeah. do what they've said that they're going to do and meet their obligations is definitely something worth considering. Mm-hmm. Well, Katie, I think we're going to have to wrap it up there, but this was a super interesting look at uh, what I think is a totally unexplored. I shouldn't say totally unexplored because you're exploring it quite comprehensively, <laughs> but uh, as far as advocacy organizations. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I'm excited to to actually read your book, which I haven't done yet, although it is on order. And Yay. I will also post a, show, a link to it in the show notes so that our listeners can check it out too, if they care to. Fantastic. Um, okay. I'm really happy to talk about this. And it is like trade is really nerdy and like can get really, really technical. <laughs> so I'm glad it wasn't too boring because I do think like buried in that nerdy stuff, there's some things that could be really useful for the animals. And that's yeah. what it's all about. We just can't ignore the fact that we live in a globalized world and these issues yeah. are going to become increasingly prominent, I think, in the future. Yes, I think so too. Yeah, the world the the world is not made up of separate islands and our um, activities affect one another. And there is, there is this growing area of global animal law that sort of recognizes and responds to that. And this is an important part of it. Mm. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Katie. We'll have you back again, I'm sure. I hope so. It was an absolute pleasure. Heroes and Zeros. Okay, and it's time now for everyone's favorite segment, Heroes and Zeros. Heroes and Zeros. So we've got an Alberta hero this this week, Peter. Actually, an Edmonton <laughs> kind of a, hero. A fun one. It's almost a tongue-in-cheek one, isn't it? Kind of. Kind of. You want it's to kind of, but it's in? kind of fun. Sure, we're giving our hero uh, today uh, to the brand new CFL football team, the Edmonton Elks. The Edmonton Elks, Camille. Plural. We're giving it to the... <laughs> we're giving... <laughs> I am uh, fairly sure that the Edmonton Elks would never have guessed that they would be the hero of the Paw and Order podcast. But we decided to give it to them anyway, because they have inadvertently done something amazingly. They have decided to use the new form of plural in naming the team the Edmonton Elks, because the traditional plural, as you know, Camille, for elk is elk. That is the traditional plural. But we here at Animal Justice, and especially there at Animal Justice with Camille Lapchuk, feels that individual elk are not treated well under a plural that uses the same name as the individual. And therefore, the better form of plural is to recognize that every elk is an individual, just like the Edmonton Elks, Camille. So we are believing, or we are choosing to believe, that the CFL football team chose... To strike a blow, Camille, for animal equality by calling their team the Edmonton Elks. 
I am positive, Peter, that that was part of their motivation. (laughs) They probably listened to this podcast and listened to us talk about fishes before. I think so. I think so, too. And until being proven otherwise, Camille, we are going to go with that theory. The Edmonton Elks is now our favorite Canadian. Is that what they are? The Canadian Football League team. (laughs) (laughs) We're all going to go out and buy Edmonton Elks T-shirts so that we can we can uh, support the uh, team that celebrates the individuality of every single animal. Bravo, Edmonton Elks. Bravo, Edmonton Elks. For every hero, Camille, there is a zero and we are going, oh, it's to your province, isn't it, Camille? Oh, it is. We're back to Ontario. The Riding Regency Slaughterhouse in Toronto is this episode zero. So the the Riding Regency Slaughterhouse had a bad uh, run. Bad run. Uh, They've apparently now been charged by the Canadian Food Inspection Agency for selling some sort of contaminated food product uh, and also for misleading investigators about it. Now, I was confused when this press release first came out. The CFIA put it out you know, a few days a week, probably before you're hearing this episode. And they didn't really provide much detail about dates or when. So I initially thought this was, you know, a new incident. But I think what's actually going on here is that this links back to a previous incident where Riding Regency, which slaughters cows, had its license revoked by the CFIA in late 2019. And so they weren't operating for close to a year um, because their license had been pulled, I I think possibly over a year. And again, it was for selling contaminated products and allegedly misleading investigators about some sort of situation. So after their license was pulled, the slaughterhouse was reopened under new management, now True Harvest Meats, uh, and unfortunately is back to killing cows. So I initially thought it was the new slaughterhouse that had been charged, but it looks mm. like it's the old one under the old name Riding Regency. So not only has the oh, license so- been pulled, but they're now following up with charges in relation to that uh. incident. All right, so we can't say it's the new one. The new management is still clean at the moment, as clean as you can be in a slaughterhouse. (gasps) Very, very dirty clean. Very dirty clean. All right, well, we're happy to give a zero to the Riding Regency Slaughterhouse for uh, continued violations of uh, slaughter requirements, as minimal as those are, of course. Yep. And that's our episode for this week. That Peters. brings us to a close. That brings us to a close, as I like to say, on the it's not the calendar year, but it is the uh, spring year. And uh, that leads into our much needed vacation, Camille. Yes. I hope you have a wonderful time off and I'll see you Thank in early you. August, Peter. All right. I look forward to it. Take care, everyone, and all the best and good luck getting through your vaccination period. We'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in today. We'd love to ask you to subscribe to the Pod and Order podcast using Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or your other favorite podcatcher. Also, please leave a rating because it helps more people find the show. You can also consider supporting us on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash order if you like what you hear. You can find me on Twitter at, at Peter Sankoff or at my website, petersankoff.com. You can find me on Twitter at Jess L. Reed. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Camille Labchuk, that's L-A-B-C-H-U-K. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics. And finally, we'd like to thank our producer, Shannon Nickerson. See you next time on Paw and Order. For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I-R-O-A-R-P-O-D.com. Ow!